the Romans? Where were they now? You're looking at him, asshole. You are listening to Pada Bing Redux, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos and all things that flow from it all over again. If video interests you, we're on YouTube now. I'm your guide, partner, fellow fan, Vic Singh. It's an honor and privilege that you're here and that we're doing this together again. Where, like Lil Wayne once said, all I need is a beat with a DMX sample. All I need is an episode of The Sopranos. Today's agenda, anger, denial, and acceptance. Three things and top level, three principal things going on. Consequences for Christopher and Brendan's shit show at the Fuck Factory. Tony always getting the benefit of his bargains. No matter how dogmatic you wear your beliefs, literally and figuratively. And Meadow growing up, scoring drugs and other teenage shenanigans. All under Tony's nose, essentially fully expressing her Tony genes. The episode opens on Christopher and Brendan in the field. Returning the truck they jacked with the suits. A callback from last episode. A little reminiscence bump to get things moving in case you missed the previously on. These little consistent continuity jolts throughout the series ground the story in its own history, beat by beat, and in effect, set us in the stone of it all. And while I'm not suggesting Chase had certain psychological aspirations in getting dipshits like me to obsess over the art of this show, there's a concept out there called the mere exposure effect, whereby people tend to develop a preference for things merely because they exist and are familiar with them. And I can certainly see how it's precisely the way he lets us into this otherwise completely closed off and insular world that creates this effect of wanting to stay in it, keep returning to it, belonging in it via these seemingly scientifically timed callbacks and unfolding of story. What we're seeing is more than just art. There's a science to the art itself here that's singular. The way drama and comedy and character become indistinguishable. Also, Chris and Brendan's cavalier attitude about it all is the perfect bookend for what comes at the end of the episode. How things start versus how they end. Here, signaling to the audience, their side operation will be a persistent problem. If left unchecked, it will escalate. Driving off, we're left with the notion that these guys, despite Junior's assertion otherwise, are in fact two cowboy outlaws who probably won't be able to outrun the law for much longer. Speaking of Junior, over lunch, Mikey fills him in on the return truck and the fallout from the ordeal. Among the details he chose to divulge are that the trucking outfit's grateful to Tony, Red, not Junior. Chose is the operative word here. Every character wants something, right? Here, Mikey wants to clear himself a path to be in the upper echelon of this thing. A perennial Grand Slam second weaker at a minimum. And Chris and Brendan present obstacles to that. They're the John Isners or Sam Queries or Marcos Bagdadises to his Novak Djokovic. In his own head, anyways. Mikey's trying to get under Junior's skin as a kind of accelerant to achieving his end, blitzscaling. Whereas Junior's approaching this as level-headed as one can under the circumstances. He's no hothouse flower. And what's more, he's waited long enough to know that waiting a little more is all part of the gig. Per Tom Petty, the waiting's the hardest part. For Junior, the waiting's been a form of purgatory, or a divine Ellis Island, as Richard Dawkins once called it. Did you know that to get out of the real purgatory, at least in medieval times, one could buy indulgences from the church, essentially taking days off your purgatory wrap? They even issued signed certificates. They were about as redeemable or bankable as Christopher's word he'd leave the Comley operation well enough alone. But what Mikey gives Junior is a justification to force his hand, if and when the time is right, because he's got little option now. Tony doesn't have his thumb on things. And how's it going to look if this keeps happening and he does nothing? 
Character-wise, Junior's about saving face. Guys suffered enough indignities already. This culture, page one, places a high emphasis on honor and reputation. Many cultures are rooted in these ideas, and people derive a part of their self-concept from the groups they belong to. A note on the script structure, as written. Junior starts out calm, ends up cross. Mikey starts out wanting blood, ends up blunted. Talked off a ledge, for a moment anyways. And the detail of the way the piano riffs after Junior says that they're not making a Western? Take it easy. We're not making a Western here. Gets me every time. It's a slapping the backboard after you've dunked level of precision and detail. One last painterly dash with the brush before stepping back to approve the work. And on the subject of Westerns, I wrote one to mixed reviews, so even I could benefit from this brief aside. What are the elements of a killer, enduring, timeless Western? Bucolic settings, archetypal characters, lone gunslingers, corrupt sheriffs, protagonists injected up with a troubled past and moral ambiguities, conflict of the law versus lawlessness, or if not that, survival versus death, Dredged in themes of justice, morality, and a healthy dose of revenge. Structured around a quest, culminating in a showdown with blurred lines. Score it with a Morricone soundtrack. Cast it with A-listers or one-time A-listers due for a boost. And, well, punch your ticket to the four-year consideration screener circuit. From one person waiting to another. Over to Tony waiting for his session with the good doc. While reading the paper, he gets distracted by a painting of a red barn on the wall. Now, it's no Tintoretto or Lichtenstein, but there's some visual interest, at least as far as red barns go. Also, what happened to the statue? No sight of it in any of the angles we get this go around. Now, are distractions in waiting rooms a thing? I recently met a, get this, interior decorator. This house looked like shit. Who, among other things, does interiors for shrinks. And she told me the stuff she puts in there isn't meant to elicit responses or provoke thought. The mandate she's tasked with most often is keeping things neutral and non-provocative. Anything to unintentionally influence a patient's thoughts or feelings. She did admit, though, that many therapists in the field are now assuredly Dr. Melfi acolytes and no doubt might employ devices in their individual offices to elicit certain something-somethings, or at a very minimum, spark conversation. Tony notices something in the painting, becomes curious, gets up to look at it. What about it prompted him to do that? What about art prompts anyone to do that? The uh, hop up out of their seat like that DJ Khaled reaction meme. Details, textures, complexities, Meaning? What's he thinking about in that initial moment? I don't think it's the stuff he says to Melfi. Feels like that was all defense mechanism-y speak. He saw something in the painting that troubled him. Reminded him of something. Someone. That's what art does. Whether it's in a museum or some small shop in a name-your-seaside community. Something in it draws us to it on a personal level. I'd guess the barn or the tree were remembrances that pulled at involuntary memories, the same way Proust was triggered by certain smells and tastes and sounds. The decision to go close up to the entry on the barn, from the light to the darkness, was deliberate. I think the idea that art serves as a conduit for understanding and expressing the human experience comes from Proust too. That or inside a Hallmark card or fortune cookie. But what was a scam to Tony is that the painting pierced him in a way he wasn't ready for. Created a cognitive dissonance. In session, he calls it a trick picture, with the old tree rotted out inside. The word choices of old and rot immediately conjure up thoughts of his mother, a topic he's increasingly defensive about. So it fits. And 
trick is an idea that's pretty established in the art world. There's a French term called trompe l'oeil that literally means deceive the eye. One of the most famous examples of this is a painting called Escaping Criticism by a Spanish painter called Perry Borel del Caso. My guy Caravaggio did a painting in 1601 called Supper at Emmaus that is credited with having illusionistic elements as well. Foreshortening is the technical term. Here, an outstretched arm creating a sense of depth and three-dimensionality, as if it's intruding into the viewer's space. It depicts Jesus shortly after the resurrection enjoying a meal with two unknowing disciples before ascension. Now, there's no Jesus in that painting in the waiting room, but there might as well be, as Tony thinks he's onto her. He insists it's a special made psychological picture. He likens it to a Rorschach test, that it's elitist and designed to diminish patience. Gotta say though, this Rorschach dude's quite legendary. Guy invented a psychological test that exists in many forms and fashions to this day before he died at the untimely age of 37. I started a fucking podcast about The Sopranos at 37. In art speak, what Tony's doing is known as over-interpretation and occurs when a viewer projects their own assumptions, experiences, or biases onto a piece of art. I can certainly see how I fit into that mold with respect to this show, but I plead there's never been any over-interpretation going on here. Just mere marveling. But that's not to say over-interpretation is necessarily a bad thing. A diversity of interpretations enriches our collective understanding of a work even if it misses the mark or misinterprets the artist's original intentions. Mostly what we see here, though, Tony's excessive suspicion, is a manifestation of his paranoia. Digging into it a little deeper, especially in relation to art, and to Tony's chagrin, here's a Harvard-type word for you. There's something known as apophenia, whereby a person perceives connections or patterns from random or meaningless data. Scene structure-wise, Tony starts on offense, attacking. But notice how by the end he deflates. Whereas Melfi starts on her heels a bit, defending her choice of art from a little gallery in Provincetown. But then she retakes control of the conversation by the way she alludes to the severity of cancer. Also, tell me a retired Jennifer Melfi spending summers in Provincetown wouldn't make for a watchable, even if low-concept, shootable, limited series. Maybe she hangs a shingle there and sees patients one day a week. This scene is all about setting that up. Not the limited series, as eminently watchable as it might be, but the realities of a late-stage cancer diagnosis. Moving things in the direction of Jackie naming a successor. From a hollowed-out tree to a sapling, if you will. Or I guess the better analogy would be something as strong as oak. Like Cush's dad's word in Jerry Maguire. Hey, you know I don't do contracts. What you do have is my word. And it's stronger than oak. Over at Jackie's hospital room, Mikey's making sure Jackie knows air in the line of an IV will kill him. It's like telling a squad that's down 30 in the fourth of an elimination game six that they're probably not going to play a game seven. Invoking my inner Dr. Justin on you guys, what Mikey's referring to is what's known as an air embolism. If air enters an artery or vein, it can wreak all kinds of havoc if unchecked, block blood flow, cause heart attacks, strokes, or respiratory failure. Thankfully, Rosalie reassures everybody that this isn't a Fugazi hospital, that their stats for such events are negligible. Everything we need to know about Roe happens with what she doesn't say, but what she does. Smack Mikey on the back of the head for putting ideas in Jackie's mind like that, for running his mouth generally, and for just, well, a general lack of bedside manner. That simple act did one thing with ease. It leapfrogged her out of the one-dimensional supportive role. In one fell swipe, she revealed motivations, conflicts, and growth potential. She was given agency. She could have plot implications, 
be more than just filler or a token presence. And she's real. Yeah. Okay. I'm thinking of J-Lo in that music video back in the day with Ja Rule. Mikey's sober spiel gives room and shape to Tony's arrival. Like a Caesar returning to Rome. Opposites. Contrast. The scene just went from being in the XY space to X, Y, and Z. You see it in Jackie's demeanor. From ambivalent and slack-jawed with Mikey to jovial and enthusiastic around Tony and the rest of the gang. Hesh, Polly, Sill. The Tony-Mikey encounter, more of the same ball-breaking, not unlike how when Roman and Shiv are in the same space together. Fuck you, man. You just know this is a yellow brick road to something. And there's few things that jump off the page or that are more dynamic than dysfunctional relationships. And a lot of the magic of what we get in this series is one dysfunctional relationship after another. I mean, when you look at it from afar, Tony's most normal relationship is with his mistress's one-legged sister. Not his wife, his kids, his minions, or associates. All the normal places you'd expect to find safe harbor. What's interesting, and of course relatable, why it works so well, is that in any given room, there's always going to be people you like and people you don't. Or, in this case, that one particular person nobody likes. That nobody's sure about, but that exists or that gets to exist because of who they work for, are related to, or what they do. The Joffrey Baratheons of the world, Pete Campbell, Janice in this show, Newman in Seinfeld. Polly resumes where Mikey left off. Great juxtaposition. Also a character tell. Every crew's got one of those guys. Get the fuck out of here. Jackie's suggestion that Hesh's Judaism is a luxury compared to what he has to go through with his Italian mook brethren is inserted to tee up Silvio's introduction of the plot of this episode. But it's an interesting contrast, as there are more similarities between the cultures than there are differences. Family, food, community. Now, the mention of Hesh's religion reminds Sill of something. The Hasidim problem. Titleman, a motel owner by the Bing. This is where the episode's plot unfolds. A few scenes in this time as opposed to right at the top. It's got to be early, just doesn't have to be right away. There's some room for art, playing with form. Tony's attention is effectively shifted from Jackie's succession plan to a business proposition. Titleman needs something, a divorce for his daughter. And Tony's in a position to, how shall we say, expedite things. If Nan Pierce had shaken hands at the very fair and generous $8 billion for Pierce, she would have missed out on the $10 billion just minutes later. Polly's solution is quick. Ben Watt. Pop a cap in his ass. Or if you want to get cute with the blend of Yiddish and urban culture, get got. But this ain't a John Morant IG Live. This is the breakdown of a marriage. And that's a tragic event. Even per the Talmud. Hesh says as much himself, even though he strongly advises against doing business with Titleman, in part because his community has a history of self-policing, complex family or religious matters such as this. But if Tony can help, there's 25K with his name on it. That, of course, is just the first pencil presented to him. But attaching a dollar amount, any dollar amount to an offer, gets the conversation going. Moves it from mere talk, hypothetical, to everybody in their action stations. The scene ends because Jackie's tired, has heard enough. Nice way to bring us back to that storyline before Tony detours from it for a bit. Feels rushed maybe, but we gotta keep going. Remember, get into scenes late and get out early. 
or at least one of the two, to keep pace, heighten intrigue, stay engaging, keep the audience on its toes in terms of what's happening or what happened. Okay, from hearing enough to Meadows' choir practice, you either see that or you don't. I don't know what to tell you. It's just too smart. This scene's all about setting up Meadow scoring some drugs. She jumps her cue. Hunter defends her. Are you her lawyer? No. Imagine if a teacher talked like that these days. It was those late-night SAT prep sessions. We've all been there. Those of us, anyway, who graduated at the top of our fucking class paid those exorbitant Kaplan fees. With generative AI and whatnot, think those fees will come down any? I don't know. The obligatory walk and talk through school hallways, fretting extracurriculars, getting into a good college, ending up at Glassboro State, now known as Rowan University, same place Patty Smith once attended. Remember talking about that place on the Many Saints podcast I did, but never released. Something about those um, RCA TVs. Meadow makes a rather sad statement for any parent to have to hear about how she can't wait to be separated by a North American landmass-sized distance from her folks. And ironically, here we are doing this thing again, obsessing over her parents. And then probably again at some point in the future. Who the fuck knows? Everything's in flux. She makes it known Cal is her first choice, the setup for Carmela's unscrupulous intervention later. Also, never noticed this on the OG pod, but the walls of her school are tiled like a Mondrian. He did spend his last years in New York. Maybe Verbum Day or other schools around the tri-state area commissioned him after they saw what they saw. The post- Broadway boogie-woogie bump. By the way, my mentioning of Mondrian here isn't entirely incidental. His early work does include some portraits of trees that, if not rotted out on the inside, were definitely under duress. From Meadow and Hunter to Carmela and Charmaine, a nice generational contrast cut. Future versions of the same people, certainly suggested but more likely a cautionary tales cut. Carmela and Tony come to christen Artie's new house with backhanded compliments like, love the coziness, code for, thank God I don't live here. The superficial praise mixed with subtle undermining is clocked, na-plus ultra. Carmela welcomes Charmaine to the nabe, but Charmaine disabuses her and us of any notion that they're neighbors. The writing, of course, commenting on the way school districts are cut along the lines, in some cases, leans, of the haves and the have-nots. This concept of sharply different neighborhoods within good school districts, the stratification even within otherwise good areas. There's a well-trodden history to it all. Redlining housing policies from the 1900s, the later gentrification that followed into those formerly redlined areas, and then zoning laws. Who can build what? Where? Charmaine indicates it's been a minute. Carmela wants that to change. It's a simple, fleeting thing, but there's so much from a laying foundation, expansion of story kind of way. This whole idea of the power dynamics within friendships and frenemieships. From Carmela's point of view, her patronizing tone and behavior, how her sense of superiority comes out in her words and gestures, things like assuming you know what's best or offering unsolicited advice or help. There's guilt, maybe even a little discomfort, especially if she feels like Charmaine is struggling financially. There's a sense of obligation, warranted or not, but it's a double-edged sword, right? If she helps, she creates a feeling of owing something in return for Charmaine. 
And who wants to hang that over someone's head? Besides Tony. And if her help isn't appropriately appreciated, recall that Larry David episode. What was it? If the response isn't commensurate with the gesture, it could lead to resentment on the part of Carmela. And from Charmaine's point of view, there's an inferiority complex dynamic, though she plays it off like Shiv in conversation with Matson. Maybe resentment and jealousy, certain dependencies on the generosity of those more fortunate and the emotional exhaustion that comes with having to continuously express gratitude. There's avoidance of certain topics or activities, things like money, vacations, and equality, feeling like you're doing enough non-monetarily to try and contribute or hold your own in an otherwise disproportionate relationship. So yeah, guys, all that from a single sentiment conveyed through dialogue. All this from a slice of gabagool. Tony goes down to see Artie in the garage fixing a leak. Great little metaphor. One guy fixing things, another breaking them. Tony offers a bridge loan until the insurance kicks in, congealing that power dynamic Carmela kicked off last scene. But any insurance money is increasingly unlikely as a second arson investigation is underway. Now, nothing gets a criminal's antennas up faster than the word investigation. What do they think, you're mobbed up? You're working stiff for Christ's sake. The whole premise of an arson investigation is a season's worth of material, from assessments to scene investigations, signs of accelerants, how tidy or not was Silvio, to interviews. You can only imagine how some of the ones with restaurant patrons would go. Artie himself explains that the fire defies logic. Who'd burn down a perfectly good restaurant? Says it's stupid. Insane. This, while we're on Tony's face working through the beginnings of a potential panic attack. The nervous fingers. All this to stop my uncle from doing something I didn't want him to do. At the expense of my own friend. But for guys like Tony and, I don't know, Logan Roy, is the word friend and all that comes with it, support, trust, mutual respect, reciprocity, acceptance, and understanding, even exist? Or is it just another means to an end? Wrapping up the specter of an arson investigation, there's document investigations, already solvency or any past under-the-table dealings could come to light, and then there's the rendering of a final decision. If arson is deemed to be the reason, criminal proceedings could follow. But that all this is simply on the periphery of this story is a testament to, well, this fucking story and the layers and nuance to it. Things like arson investigations, and paneling grand juries over RICO predicates, late-stage cancer prognoses, as ripe for story as they are, are never the main event. In very much the same way our own individual versions of those things are 35,000-foot level, very much on the periphery from our own day-to-days. All this talk about fire, though, reminds me of a joke my kid recently told me. You ready? Why did the fireman go to the library? To check out some hot reads. This fucking guy. Artie pivots from doomsday to c'est la vie. Why suffer till it happens, right? Mindfulness and stoicism isn't something we necessarily attribute to Artie, but it's a great foil, isn't it? Great stage for a reversal. If he can't cook, he'll try his hand at plumbing. Insert Mario Brothers joke here. But as strange bedfellows as they may be, there's some overlap, some correlation. Both are practical and have utility. Both utilize forms of systems thinking. Both require problem-solving skills. And as of right now, both are impervious to AI. Tony, in his infinite wisdom, gives him the only lesson any plumber needs. Only one concept to master. Shit runs down here. Tony says this twice in the show. Once here and once in his first team All-NBA time immemorial speech in season four. From shit running downhill, to us looking up from the bottom of Satrials at the shit that's about to come down. 
We get a shot of the pig above the pork store. This precisely as two Hasids approach. The contrast. Also the choice of a low and tight angle to establish the scene. The citizen caneness of it. The instant intimacy it creates. The larger-than-life feel. Tony sits down, listens to their plea. Titleman frames his pitch around their shared point of commonality. Both are girl dads. Chris Voss over here. But effective. When you begin from a position of mutual understanding or shared interests, negotiation becomes a problem-solving endeavor rather than an adversarial competition. The son isn't into Tony's bid for the job, but Pop shuts him down. Classic conundrum of too many chiefs, not enough Indians. Tells him in Yiddish he must present a united front, or simply fuck off in Logan Roy speak. Oh, fuck off. After what they've done to me, fuck off. But multiple languages at a negotiating table when some of the parties are boxed out is never a good sign. Definitely not in any of the pages of Never Split the Difference. Titleman's normal form of recourse, what Sill refers to as the Rabbi Goon Squad, was apparently kneecapped by the DA's office. Some context. New York had what was known as the Divorce Coercion Gang, going all the way back to the 1980s, if not earlier. There was a rabbi from Brooklyn who became known as the Prod Father by the press from his use of a cattle prod on uncooperative ex-husbands. What sick fuck? The feds broke up the ring officially in 2013 after conducting a sting operation. Where's the Donnie Brasco version of that movie? Tony says he'll do it for 25, only not grand, but percent of the motel. The way Tony shifts the anchor point of their deal, effectively foreclosing further negotiation. Kiddo freaks out, says Tony's a golem, and that dad's chicken's about to come home to roost if he takes Tony's deal. Nevertheless, they shake hands. Not your turn, Kendall. Tuttleman somehow feels like he's the winner here because writing-wise, it simply can't just be that easy for Tony, right? But Tuttleman doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's going to muscle tea. What is it that this guy can do to muck this up? Turns out it's something Tony didn't consider, despite Hesh's best efforts to dissuade him. And that, of course, is Tuttleman's plan to effectively renegotiate the deal later. Pull a force majeure, if you will, on account that he threatened his son-in-law with castration. Now, we don't know any of this yet. All we know is that it's not going to be this easy for Tony. It never is. Dramaturgically. I thought it made sense, dramaturgically. Let me just make a little side note to myself here that I managed to work that word into a podcast. Okay. Next stop, Titleman's Motel. Sill and Polly take care of business, albeit with a service bell instead of a cattle prod. And you're bragging this? Polly mentions the cat skills. That's a reference to a colloquial term called the borscht belt in upstate New York. Shecky Green, of course, was once a comic on that circuit. Ariel shit-talks Shlomo, his father-in-law, says he built this place, made it what it is. Shiv Roy, after she made a placeholder deal with the two Sandys. Polly informs him that all this hard work will essentially be amounting to nothing. A.K.A. Bupkis. Yiddish for jack shit. Also a new show starring Pete Davidson and Edie Falco. I'm no Seppenwall, but I found it watchable, even a little fresh, unexpected. Back over at the Sausage Factory, from ring-a-ding-ding to Carmela in a robe. Carm's hosting a fundraiser for a pediatric hospital and has decided to hire Artie and Charmaine to cater it. She moves with the air of a savior. 
like Chalamet and Dune, the beginning of a layered payoff for their visit to Charmaine's place. The way their life stations provide for the ultimate contrast and how this episode picks at it from all angles. Carmela calling them broke, as if there were only one way to be broke. The best part is how it seems as though Carmela's won whatever subconscious battle they have, but that at the last minute, Charmaine gets the last word and sets their relationship on an entirely different course than the one Carmela had planned for them, the beginning of this episode. Tony's weary about all the civilians in his house, but not quite so much that he's willing to move to Italy and live in a walled-off fortress. Though, the older we get, the better and better that sounds. The next day, Charmaine's going over the menu for the fundraiser. Carm's in her gym drip, thankful that Charmaine's got her out of being in a state of sixes and sevens, or a state of flux. Until, of course, she notices fingerprints all over her break front. Let's her maid know with a hand gesture. The shot is deliberate in letting us know it's a thing, something to remember, a setup. This scene is a full visual display of the haves and have-nots. Carmela's outfit versus Charmaine's. Carmela commenting nonchalantly about the help, as if they're not even there, or as if she were behind a distortion field. This versus Charmaine looking back at her, conveying that she doesn't even have help. Not quite the same thing as Frank asking Kendall if he'd let the staff off for a day, and Kendall saying even still, he kept a skeleton crew. But right up there, in terms of reaction. Christopher's at home watching TV when Meadow comes over looking for drugs. Brendan's doing pull-ups, bitter about the hierarchical structure he finds himself in. When Christopher refuses Meadow, she says she'll just go to Jefferson Avenue before telling Adriana she doesn't know what she sees in him. Script level, nice little through line for Tony's comment about her being a 10 and Chris average at best, like father, like daughter. Very unique setup structure. One person's dialogue patterned after one that came before it. The subtlety. Chris answers money. What else? Funny how subtlety can be blunted or trumped by the truth. Or more to the point, truth we often think but do not say. Brendan closes out the scene with some wisdom. Kids, you think you can protect them, but you can't. Definitely ironic in that he's a guy who could use some protection himself. Back at the hospital, Jackie's watching nature shit when Tony walks in. What's this about? Tony being Tony, showing love, showing loyalty, showing initiative. <laughs> he comes with lies, though. Says AJ's in the ER with Carm because he stepped on a nail. Note, this actually happens to someone AJ works with in the Johnny Cakes episode in season six. Like Nora Ephron once said, everything is copy. Okay, Melfi's office. One of the bigger sessions of the series in terms of showstop factor. And you know, Maybe after this run-through, we can do a top 10 Melfi sessions. I've never actually considered it before. And I'm pretty sure plenty of outlets have already given great takes on it, if not irresistibly clickable ones. He's telling her a version of what happened at the hospital. Never the full truth, the whole truth, always a version. There's lots of reasons why people aren't fully honest in therapy. Fear of judgment. Fear of vulnerability. Lack of trust. Concerns about confidentiality. Denial. Wanting to present a certain image. Feelings of irrelevance. Or fear of emotions. For Tony, it's pretty clear-cut that he's concerned about confidentiality. There's a lot of pockets of silence in this session. 
more than normal. If you think of it as swimming lessons, she's moved him from the shallow end to the point where your toes can't feel the bottom anymore. The point where you got to figure shit out more or less for yourself. He notices her credentials on the wall for a second time, calls out Tufts Medical School by name. That's to sell that he wants her informed medical opinion about Jackie's prognosis. Notice the shift in the scene, though. Tony from happy and jovial to concerned and panicked. When his anger peaks, she brings up the tree in the painting, says there's nothing in the picture to indicate that it's rotted out, that that's what he saw, not what's actually there. His own personal worldview informed what he saw in that painting, that overinterpretation we talked about, looking at art and putting our shit on top of it and spitting out a meaning based off that. All it took for him to flip was her saying, I see. The push-in on him as he unloads his anger, and how the push-in stops as she says, what's happening is we're getting closer to you. Details like that, like the stitching on the seats of a Roche Beaubois. Why don't we just move into Roche Beaubois, save the delivery charge? She asks, What happens to a tree that's rotted out? For any aspiring botanists or arborists out there, that's actually a thing. Heart rot. It's a fungal disease that causes the decay of the wood at the center of the trunk or branches. Causes structural instability, inevitable death. Trees, ducks, what the fuck are you, Ranger Rick? I'll tell you some job, you shrink, Scott. You think everybody's lying to you while you're pulling scams on them. Fuck you! What's that? Serious moment? Crank that entertainment dial all the way to the right. That's what that is. Highs and lows. Fastballs and curveballs. Up the line serves or out wide. Or underhand serves if you're Nick Kyrgios. The amount of times Tony blows out of her office, it's montage material. Note how his impulsiveness is always set against her calmness in those moments. Back at the house, Carm's on the phone, in Ray the fundraiser. Chris sneaks in, hands Meadows some drugs. That he caved is interesting to the extent that it's a tendency of addicts. Carmela notices. At the very end, him slinking up the stairs. What that says about his cat burglar skills is one thing. But what it says about her radar, there's more where that came from. When she walks in on them, Meadow deflects it so fast, Tony'd miss it if he blinked. Father's Daughter, Part 2, this episode. At Casa Buco, they make fun of the fundraiser while prepping for it. The idea that there might be a soprano wing with bulletproof glass. You'd hope the hospital's due diligence would be better than that. Certainly not a place you'd want to have your chest opened up if anybody could buy a wing. The scene's all about Artie wanting to accept Tony's help and Charmaine not letting him. But making a distinction between a paid fundraiser gig for a good cause as being a worthy and worthwhile exception. Then there's the Artie loyalty precisely because of the gesture. Coming up in this thing, Tony knows its currency and wields it to perfection. At least he made the gesture. So true. Powerful. Ending on a comedic note. You want to watch what you're doing? You're squeezing the quail. What's the result of doing such a thing? Less juicy? Unevenly cooked? Due to stretchy stretchy? At the fundraiser, Carm signals for Charmaine, like she did earlier, to fetch some veal tonado for one of the guests. The contrast of Charmaine going from being in total control with Artie to total ownership by Carmela. Her back's against the wall. Looks like Carmela's gonna close this out. She can empty her bench, garbage time, all that. But Charmaine's just waiting for some late-game heroics. Now, 
Back to the hospital aspect of this for a sec. Why would a hospital oblige a fundraiser event from a prominent member of a known crime family? Christopher put it simply enough earlier, for the fucking money, duh. But it's an interesting ethical question to consider. Do they separate or distinguish the funds from actions? Is this like a Woody Allen situation? Ethical and public relations challenges? Shoulder shrug emoji? Bobby Axelrod experienced a bit of this in one of the early seasons of Billions, too. Out in the field, Ariel gets tossed into the trunk of a car. Time to crank the flywheel of the third act. Stir the momentum, land the plane. Back at the fundraiser, Tony complains to Artie about all the strangers in his house. One of them could be part of a sting operation for all he knows. Tony doesn't like that Artie asks him a simple question. Why'd you invite them? He's cool being the one doing the complaining, but not being the one doing the listening. Tony can't take Artie's drama. His ability to display egocentrism and empathy in the same scene, things that are polar opposites, and to sell it with ease. Actually, ease isn't the right bar, more like seamless. Forget his own guilt. The drama of other people going on and on about it, it's enough to make you want to, well, throw food. Every scene here this episode, like clockwork, are mini anger, denial, acceptances. And what of Artie's power here? This notion of a guy who can get away with things practically no one else can. Probably not even Tony's own wife and kids. Does Artie even realize he has that power? Could he ever properly wield it? Or does Artie truly just not look at Tony the same way everybody else does? Because of how far back they go. Part of me always wondered, probably already talked about it, if Artie had something on Tony. Anything. The writing here is what opens up all those possibilities. All from a single fling of Gabagool. Camera pulls back to let us watch them go at it. Gotta protect those Panavision Primo lenses. Over at Satrial's, Ariel gets launched into the back room. Fights, though only with words. He successfully resists their efforts to contain him until Silvio puts him down with a ball-peen hammer. And since they can't kill him, they decide to find a way to put him to work. That fits right in as a perfect setup for Ariel's Masada spiel. This scene's all about how Tony's guys can never really fully take care of a thing without having to engage him on some level. Meanwhile, Tony enjoys a night with a Hockney knockoff disguised as a night with Arena. The first of many classic, I'm here doing this thing, having fun, living my best life, when all you fucking subordinates can't handle your business and need me to come clean up the mess. Unfuck what you just fucked up. The faux Hockney. The cut to the splash in the pool, but no person. The empty chair. Perhaps a little AJ foreshadowing. Also, another payoff. From one painting to another. Tony continuously seeking meaning, or searching for answers in things around him in regards to things happening to him. Tony pulls up to Satrial's, the choice to show the wheel screeching to a halt to show he pulled up in a robe and slippers, the everydayness of an event that is anything but everyday. That's the epicenter of the magic of this show. And this is the most pre-game NBA Tony shot, walking into the arena like James Harden. The camera sweeps up to show the footage of Satrial's, then more angles, angles, angles of him going up the stairs, the motif of staircases in the show. Sills monging on a hoagie, or I guess sub if we're strictly North Jersey. Note the DC on the shelf off to the side. Put there, no doubt, for Meals by Couge. Ariel's speech is brilliant, unafraid of death, when Sills says it's the only way. Tony's impressed. 
needs to call a timeout, consult with Hesh. Usually, people don't push up against his wheels in motion, right? But here, we're presented with the opposite of that, and it's beautiful. A carryover from the previous episode. Hesh's idea? Hit him where it hurts. Says if he's ready to go to the world to come, make his time here on Earth exist with something he probably won't want to lose. Finish his bris. Yeah. Log that in your negotiation script database. How to persuasively deliver a masked ultimatum to someone you're negotiating with. Back at Casa Soprano. The slow approach on Carmela and Charmaine cleaning up after the event. Auguring Charmaine's 35-foot dagger at the buzzer. This scene is so fucking brilliant. Carmela thinking she's got the undisputed one-up. A one-seed against an eight-seed and a hobbled one at that. But Charmaine turns it over and blows up Carm's world. Just rocks it. Unleashes her own Jimmy Buckets of sorts. At least, non-finals Jimmy Buckets. And importantly, it's got nothing to do with money. That's the best part. Can't buy me love. Camilla, I never wanted to tell you this... It happened so long ago. You and Tony, you, you weren't even married. It's probably silly for me to even bring it up now. What? You were down at the show with your parents that summer. You and Tony were on the outs. He called me. He did? One thing led to another. We started dating each other and... Camilla, I slept with them. You slept with, with Tony? Really? It wasn't for me. Camilla, what I'm trying to say is stop worrying about me. Really. I mean, we both made our choices. I'm fine with mine. Her face. Both their faces. A perfectly tuned and timed and pitched reversal. Tony walks into the motel. Shlomo reneges on the deal, tries to pay Tony off with sizable consideration in the form of a white envelope. Thinner, I might add, than ones we typically see Tony receiving. A breakup fee or termination fee, although I guess this would be more of a walkaway fee since Shlomo here was a de facto acquirer of services. Great dose of relatability, justifying his actions per a passage from the Talmud, or name your holy book, the trope of otherwise religious people who can't help their own hypocrisy. Of which Tony could care less what he says. The incorrectness is tuned like a cello, calling the Talmud a he. You simply can't get away with this on this level like The Sopranos does. It's blissfully effective. Just so, so good. Also, love that Tony gets chewed out in Yiddish as Shlomo scurries off after having to give 15% to his son-in-law out of his own end, on top of Tony's original cut. And how likely or unlikely is it that Shlomo will report this incident to the goon squad in his community? The same one Silvio mentioned earlier, and send some cattle prod-holding rabbis after Tony. Tony goes to see Jackie in the hospital, tells him they're in the motel business now. But Jackie's more interested in the thermometer he's using. The disconnect here. The future and the past in front of our eyes. The shift happening without any words being spoken. That's what's so deep about this stuff. There's no exposition. We just sense where this is going. The point of this scene is to tell us that Tony's about to get a bump, but it's never said. From one place we go to die, to another place we go to die. Junior hangs a picture up of AJ for Livia. Tells her Jackie's in bad shape, and that he wants to do something about Christopher to assert his power. Wants Livia's blessing, family and all, whatever that means. And she permits, a mere talking to. The loadedness of that. And 
Ari Filoni, she's whatever. How does she even know about him or who he is? A guy who's at the bottom of the totem pole of soldiers. This moment tells us that she's aware of Tony's business and what goes on. A keen insider that knows all the moving parts and how they work. Always has. Tony complains to Melfi about Jackie's absence from their conversation. Tells her he was called a Frankenstein by Shlomo. What's ironic, of course, is that Melfi, in a sense, is creating a Frankenstein herself. Creating something that becomes harmful, uncontrollable, a more clever criminal. He admires the Hasids, as out there as they may be. They're not afraid of death. Melfi says, maybe they have the belief because they are afraid. It's interesting. That they too are employing denial or repression as a defense mechanism. As a way to manage or control an underlying or unconscious fear. Tony says he isn't afraid of death either. The pause. Not if it's for something. There's that for what notion again. What do we do things for? What's it for? For what? A war, he says. A reason. All this shit's for nothing. And if all this shit's for nothing, why do I got to think about it? Is that the acceptance part of the denial, anger, acceptance troika? Also, what happened to the bargaining and depression stages? Why didn't they make the cut for the title? Melfi? That's the mystery of why we're given the questionable gift of knowing that we're going to die. The double-edged sword of existential dread and powerful motivator. She asks about whether he feels like a Frankenstein, a thing lacking humanity, human feelings. And what could elicit more human feeling than a parent watching their child perform? From that unanswered question, to Meadows' recital. Tony arrives, watching your child perform. What could be more human? Then quickly over to Christopher, getting accosted by Junior's guys. Note, he's getting ice cream from an ice cream truck when it happens. The ice cream truck motif is all over the Sopranos. Goes all the way back to many saints, too. The choice to have Meadows' recital music over these cross-cuts, the orchestral parallel editing. Back to the recital, very Godfather baptism scene energy, the back and forth, the intercuts. There's an andante espressivo to it. Who did what? Christopher Nolan is a more recent director that employs this technique with a fresh twist. There's obviously Inception and the third act of The Dark Knight. But the one I find extremely elegant is the parallel editing in Dunkirk. How it tells three interweaving narratives. One on land, one at sea, and one in the air. And how each one takes place over different timescales. A week, a day, and an hour, respectively. Tony tries to hold Carm's hand, but she pulls back. He wonders why, but we know why. The Charmaine thing. Delicious slice of dramatic irony served up alongside a mock execution. When the waiter passes through asking us how our meal is at this point, we can only gesture an okay as our mouths are too full to answer. Back to Chris on a dock fighting for his life. Chris thinks it's Tony that did this. That's the perfect nuance to make this scene sing. Like Otis Redding, where he on the dock too. He's got no idea it's Junior masterminding this the same way he did with his father in Many Saints. Or did he? Also, Livia's implicit implication in both. All because of the crystal he gave Meadow. No good deed, right? As twisted as even that is. 
Back to the recital and Meadows moment. Tony's emotion crests as we... Hi, Jack. Bye, Jack. The pullback to reveal Junior's watching in the most inspect-what-you-expect kind of way. The only thing that could have made this scene better, tie into the film maybe, is if we saw him put in a call to Livia, telling her it's done. The art of death. That's The Sopranos. Every death, however gruesome, is matched with a degree of dignity and irony and, as always, humor. From Junior back to Tony, the rocking back and forth, that andante espressivo. Which one of these guys is going to get the brass ring? Even if you think you know, the tension is ratcheted up just enough to let you know things could get worse before they get better. Bloody, even. But that's precisely the magic. No one could have had any idea that Tony was going to resort to diplomacy to achieve his end, which we'll get into, among other things, on the next one. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll.